and welcome to A Living Mind. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Iva Davies. Now, Iva is the co-founder and lead singer of the band Ice House, and they released their 40th anniversary live album, Ice House Plays Flowers. Now, Ice House was originally called Flowers, and their debut album was called Ice House. The name and the title were reversed when it was discovered that another band somewhere in the world already had the name Flowers, therefore to change to Ice House. You're all caught up now. I love Iva. Ice House is one of my favorite bands. I've been trying to get him for years. We talk about his start in music and how it could have been different had one of his instruments not been broken. Uh, their signature song, Electric Blue, was co-written by John Oates. And John Oates basically stalked Iva all the way back to Australia to collaborate with him. And the result was Electric Blue. It was fantastic. Not only did he work with Ice House, Iva that is, he also composed the music for the Russell Crowe movie, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Fantastic movie. He's so talented, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Iva, I mean, it's it's 40 years uh, of Ice House. Uh, you released the live album Ice House when you originally Flowers. Um, I've been a big fan of you guys for almost 35 years now. I haven't seen you guys live, and I know with the pandemic going on, do you guys have any plans coming to the U.S. following the pandemic? Um, the problem that we have here uh, is the same problem we've always had, and in fact, it's been the same for all Australian bands, is that uh, we're you know literally on the other side of the world, and uh, we have quite a big operation, I guess. Right. Um, and the problem is moving it. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, the it's an incredibly expensive exercise, and so I'd, we'd love to come and tour in North America and actually lots of places where we had success. Um, Canada, we had um, big success there as well. Right. But um, uh, it's not so easy for an Australian band as it might be for say an English band or a European band. It's just a kind of short flight across a stretch of water, whereas. Um, you know, we're Australian. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the way it is. We're on the other side of the world. Right. Absolutely. You know, because I've seen a lot of your live concerts, you know, via YouTube, and it really looks like you guys have a big production. So I can imagine how much it would cost to bring everything over. And you don't want to really play in like an intimate setting. You want to, you know, experience everything live in a, in a big arena or a stadium. Well, it's not so much that because we, we kind of mix up, uh, sure, uh, you know, a lot of what you'll see on, on, YouTube are, are very big shows, and uh, uh, that's true. But, uh, for example, the last two shows that we actually played um, were in New Zealand, and one of them was a very big outdoor show along the same lines of the, the stuff that you've seen on YouTube. Right. Uh, but the other, we, we kind of deliberately uh, uh, chose to do a theater that was offered to us, which was a much more intimate uh, event. Um, so it's not necessarily that we you know, we need to do you know massive stadium sized shows all the time. Uh, it's just that we have to kind of move the same amount of equipment, whether we're doing a small venue or a big one, in a peculiar way. Um, uh, in terms of you know the membership of the band, it's a six piece band, and there are a lot of keyboards. And um, I'm actually changing my live guitar rig as we speak. I've actually got an amplifier, a vintage amplifier, coming from. France, believe it or not, oh, wow. in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a big operation and it's quite a big commitment from a promoter too. So uh, especially when you're dealing with a band that hasn't been to North America since, well, I can't remember, uh, 1988, I guess is probably the last yeah. time. So it's a very long time ago. Um, and, um, uh, I guess the other side of that argument uh, was a quote from John Oates of Hall of Oates because I wrote a song with him. Right. And um, he spent uh, he spent a week in my studio in, in Sydney, came out from uh, the United States, and I had some interesting conversations with him. And one of them, uh, which I've never forgotten, he said, well, you only really have to have a couple of hits in, in North America and you can kind of do stadiums for the rest of your life. And I was actually, hmm. I was incredibly... Um, shocked by that statement because um, in Australia you kind of have a wear out sort of date built into your career Um, and I think it's possibly because it's not such a big place in terms of population so uh, it's very easy to kind of burn out um, or saturate the market here whereas North America is just enormous and so many people and so you can kind of keep playing shows non-stop and you never really cover the same <laughs> ground again yeah and it's different in australia there's a, definitely a kind of used by date built into most uh, bands and so we're incredibly lucky really that we we're still playing after 40 years and part of that is because we simply didn't play for 16 of those 40 years we actually went in a complete kind of hibernation right. um and didn't fire up again until about uh, uh 2010 um and I think uh, that's probably why we're in the kind of enviable position here to be able to pick and choose what we do, and um, and we're still working after forty years. Right now, you know, celebrating the forty years. How did the pandemic kind of like affect your plans for twenty twenty? Well, it's interesting, kind of uh, double edged sword because uh, we played. Uh, this show and, and uh, it was in February of this year and uh, the history behind it is quite interesting I guess um, there's a festival in Melbourne and it's held on on the beach in a suburb called St Kilda and we are celebrating our 40th anniversary this year 40th anniversary of the very first album when we were still called Flowers right um, and the album was called Ice House and it's very confusing for yeah. a lot of people because they don't <laughs> really know the history but right. we were forced to change our name because there was a, a conflict with another uh, another band uh, when we tried to release uh, that album internationally it was fine in Australia and New Zealand but when we tried to release it internationally we came up against the problem that somebody else was using the band name Flowers and our thinking at the time was pretty simple uh, it was there's only two names we're known by in Australia and New Zealand and that's the band name Flowers which we can't use and the name of our first album, which was called Ice House, and so we simply adopted mm. the, the name of the album. Um, but we were still called Flowers when we were approached by the St Kilda Festival, and so Flowers actually played at the very, very first St Kilda Festival, and that was 40 years ago. So they were celebrating an anniversary of 40 years, and we were celebrating an anniversary of 40 years, and they said to us, can you play again this year, and can you play as you would have played 40 years ago the repertoire that you would have played 40 years ago and so of course that was the first album right um and we uh, we come from a background of starting out really as a kind of hobby cover version band you know that's the way a lot of bands start out yeah (laughs) um 
And so at the point where we played that first St Kilda Festival, um, we would have still been playing, you know, a selection of cover versions. So um, that explains really the set list of this particular show, which is featuring the first album, our very first set of songs, and also including uh, a number of cover versions of uh, I guess a sample that was indicative of the sort of things that we were playing at the time. And, right. and that was quite interesting. There was a David Bowie, early David Bowie song. There's a Sex Pistols song. There's an hmm. early T-Rex song. Um, and so uh, we intended, you know, to start this whole, um, I guess, show off uh, by playing at that um, St Kilda Festival in February. And very shortly after that, of course, everything got shut down. Now, I didn't know it was actually being recorded. Oh, wow. um, our front of house guy that we've been working with for 10 years um, told me after, after <laughs> we'd come off stage, he said, right. oh, by the way, I've, I've got all that recorded. And it turned out to be uh, a blessing because we, of course, haven't been able to perform that set again. Um, everything's been shut down. Right. But it did turn that show into a kind of, you know, a genuine one-off. And it was recorded, and so we looked at each other and went, "Wow, well, we've got this. We've got this recorded. We should release this." So, I guess in a way, it was kind of a blessing in disguise in a peculiar way. Right. So, you know, the, anybody of the fifteen thousand people that were there that night saw a one-off show, and uh, we haven't been able to repeat that since. Right. No. Yeah. The, the, the recording is fantastic, and you mentioned, you know, T Rex. You know, you do the cover of "Get It On," and they recently just got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How much of like an influence was Mark Boland on you? Look, oh, look there were. It was a very diverse set of covers that we played at the time, and right. kind of um, uh, try to imagine that where we were sitting right at that time was really kind of the hot bed of uh, new wave recently of punk. Um, so, uh, you know, the Sex Pistols had kind of reinvented the world of music in 1975 ish. Um, and out of that came just a whole generation of bands, and a lot of them out of England, uh, but also spilling over into the beginning of um, what morphed out of punk into New Wave, as it was loosely called. And so we're getting bands out of America, you know, notably out of CBGBs in New York, the right. Talking Heads, Blondie, uh, Patti Smith, and... Um, you know, acts with a distinctly American kind of take on New Wave. And into the middle of that, we kind of popped up and we were just really playing our favourite song. So it was, a, it was a weird kind of blend of things that had only just been released, like the Sex Pistols, and things that were actually decades old, like the Kinks or, uh, or T-Rex, as you mentioned. Um, so it was a very strange set list, but they sort of had a common thread, all those songs. They were all really genuine rock and roll, um, whether they kind of badged themselves as punk or new wave or they badged themselves as late 60s, you know, brick rock or whatever. Um, and so you asked about the influence of Mark Bowen. Yes, sure. The, there, there were many influences uh, in our set list. And, right. Um, uh, Mark Bolan, we played a lot of his songs. And I must say, over the years, I kind of tried to write a T-Rex song on a <laughs> couple of occasions and failed miserably. Um, <laughs> so I never did... I never did but what was appealing about um, uh, about uh, Mark Bolan's songs was the incredible simplicity of them. And I guess, get it on, you mentioned that we, we played in this particular show. 
is a perfect example of that. It's a ridiculously simple song. And those ones are the hardest ones to write. Right. Um, I find it impossible to kind of strip things down to those basic, uh, simple elements. Um, and I've had a couple of attempts at it, and as I've always managed to complicate things somehow. <laughs> right. So how old were you when you wrote your first song? When I wrote my first song? Yeah, how old were you? Um, yeah, so I started teaching myself the guitar around about the age of 13. Okay. <laughs> and that was probably the same year when I was directed to go and take up an instrument and have lessons on a thing called the oboe, which right. is an orchestral woodwind instrument. And from that point on, I had these kind of two parallel universes going on. One was a very serious classical musician, and the other one was playing with a couple of folky kind of songwriting guys who were a bit older than me. Um, and those parallel universes went on for quite a long time. Uh, and during that, of course, uh, I was playing with these two older guys who were prolific songwriters, and um, I didn't really kind of feel the need. I was kind of like the wingman, I guess, mm -hmm. in yeah. that little ensemble of three. Uh, but I did write one song, um, and that um, sadly has disappeared into oblivion. I never recorded it mm -hmm. on anything, and so that's gone. Right. Um, but uh, a bit older, I guess, the age of 19 or so, wrote a couple more songs, and one of those was discovered by a publisher, music publisher. And that actually led to... Uh, a kind of tiny little uh, couple of years of uh, recording professionally and those produced two singles which were released on RCA. Now, we had a brand new national radio station, sort of government-run uh, uh, radio station which was um, just budding at that time and it was always t tagged as the youth station so it was dedicated expressly towards a, a young generation of listeners uh, called Double J, run by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And it went on to be an incredibly influential radio station because it did represent, you know, 20-something-year-olds. Now, those couple of singles got a bit of play on that network, but they never resulted in any commercial success, and that disappeared. That whole um, kind of episode of my life disappeared, and... Um, I was still at the time pursuing a career as a classical musician and um, I guess around about the age of, in fact, I was working uh, professionally in, a, in an orchestra um, and I'd been in the orchestra for about seven months and decided to get my oboe, I guess, upgraded or improved and made a horrible mistake and that was I took it to Sydney's most reputable woodwind repairer and when I got it back, um, I couldn't get a note out of it. It had been completely ruined. Oh, no. And what I, di I, what I didn't realise was it was a handmade French instrument made by a company in Paris who'd been making oboes for 150, 200 years or something. And they were the only ones that should have ever touched that instrument. Um, it's such a peculiarly uh, particular instrument, uh, the oboe. It's unlike um, any other woodwinds except for perhaps the bassoon in right. so much as they are all fairly straightforward to repair. Uh, but oboes are kind of exclusive to the people who actually made the thing in the first place. And so effectively, I had 11 years of, of my training and career as a classical musician kind of disappear overnight. Right. Um, 
it's not the sort of thing that you can go down to the local music store and buy. They, uh, I remember being told by my teacher when I was quite young, when we decided to um, to invest in this very, very beautiful instrument, we'll put the order into Paris and then we'll have to wait for a year and a half. Oh, wow. Um, for it to be made. And in fact, if you're a professional bassoonist and you want the world's sort of top bassoon, which I think is a brand called Henkel, um, it's not unusual for you to put your order in and wait three years. Um, and this is how exclusive they are, these instruments. And so even if I had the money at the time, and I didn't, um, I wouldn't have been able to replace that oboe. And it so happened that I'd just become the principal oboist of that orchestra. And oh, literally, no. I had to stand up in the middle of a rehearsal and tell the conductor, I'm sorry, I can't, um, I can't play the oboe for you anymore. And I had to walk out of that whole employment. Oh, wow. Um, and so... I guess a lot of other people would have kind of curled up in a fetal position and gone, I've just you know, <laughs> lost 11 years of my life. Right. Um, but I was, you know, still young and uh, I had to get a job to pay the rent somehow and I ended up um, getting a couple of cleaning jobs, including the squash court, which was next door to where I was living. And okay. um, at that time coincided with me buying my very first solid body electric guitar and a 100 watt Marshall. Um, amplifier and it was a very quiet suburb it was a very quiet sort of old exclusive um, suburb and so you know everybody for blocks um, pretty quickly found out there was a guy with a 100 watt marshal uh, in his bedroom uh, including the manageress of the squash courts uh, where I cleaned and she had a son and the son was a bass player and the son was Keith Welsh and he was uh, I met him and we shared a lot of common interest in uh, the sort of songs I've been talking about, T-Rex and early right. Bowie and uh, Iggy Pop, and Sex Pistols. Um, and that was where the original lineup of Flowers was formed. Wow. Uh, no, that's, I mean, I guess like one, you know, door is shut, another one opens. I mean, that, that, that's, that's amazing. But how, um, playing like in an orchestra, how is that different than playing like in a rock band? Oh, it's a completely different world, and <laughs> right. it's quite hard to describe. <laughs> I guess there's some interesting things about it, I guess, because the discipline of playing as a classical musician is very, very rigid in a, in a strange way because you are playing somebody else's music and they might have you know, lived 150 years ago or they might have lived 200 years ago. Right. Uh, and what they've written is very highly specified. Um and so you can't muck around with it and you can't get anything wrong. Um, it's been on a piece of paper set in stone for maybe a century or two, very highly um, respected and recognised when you're playing a piece of music by Bach or um, Mozart. Um, hundreds, thousands of people have played this before you and uh, you can't make a mistake. It's as simple as that. But you also have no investment, really, in the kind of writing process. So there was no part of my thinking um, as a professional musician in that capacity. There was no part of my thinking dedicated to me writing any music. It, I'm merely a kind of vehicle um, to perform music that's been written for us. Right. 
And you compare that to um, getting on stage with a rock and roll band, first of all, potentially playing your own songs. And I've said to people, you know, if I forget the lyrics, which I do, you know, not infrequently, yeah. <laughs> I can kind of make up stuff and it's my song. Right. Um, and, I can, and I can say to you, I can justify this because this is kind of free form uh, improvisational poetry, you know. Uh, and I'm allowed to do that because this is my composition. I, I, in this instance, are the Beethoven or the Mozart. Um, and so to that extent, uh, you're a lot, it's a lot freer world, you know, you can, right. there's room for it to be different every night, for example. Nothing is really set in stone. Maybe there are guidelines. This is the kind of harmony of the verse. This is the harmony of the chorus. Um, and things do change. Um, so it's quite a different uh, prospect to be in a rock and roll band. And there's a completely different dynamic um, uh, in the room of a performance. So when I was quite young, I had to buy a tuxedo. <laughs> and this was uh, to play in various classical ensembles and so on. <laughs> and I didn't have any money. Of course, I was only 16, I think, when I bought my first one. So I bought it from a local charity shop and and the trousers didn't actually match the coat for distance. <laughs> Nobody could tell. Right. Um, I think I paid $7 for that. Okay. Um, and that was the only one that I ever owned. And, you know, I was still 22 and playing on the concert hall stage of the Sydney Opera House, and I was still wearing the $7 tuxedo. <laughs> um, but what that represented, that tuxedo, was a uniform, and everybody in the orchestra had that black uniform. And what that does is it kind of takes uh, the individual right. individuality out of the, the all the players. So they're there because as a unit, they're going to produce a sound that people can close their eyes and listen to in the concert hall. And it makes absolutely no difference what they look like. And it's not recognised that, you know, they have this personality or that particular trait. They're purely there and you can kind of turn the lights off, as it were, um, and that's how little it matters what the orchestra actually looks like. Right. And then you put that up in comparison to when you go into a club and you see a band and have a think about how different that environment is and how different the dynamic between the band as people and the audience as people are. And it's a completely different relationship. But for a very long time in the early band, I had absolutely no idea that anybody was actually looking at us right. because I carried with me the same <laughs> kind of mentality that I had as a classical musician in an orchestra. And so I thought, well, we're invisible. We're, it's only about the sound that we're producing. Yeah. So that was where my entire focus was for a long time. Right. <laughs> Did you ever think about wearing a tuxedo with the band? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in those very early days, it's quite difficult to describe for people who um, didn't experience it firsthand, but the pub music scene in Australia was something else um, incredibly dynamic and incredibly busy. I don't think it was anything like it in the world. Um, and I remember when we embarked on our very first international tour and our first stop was London, and I was very excited 
to be in London because mm. all of this music that I'd loved, right. you know, the vast majority of it had come from England and, um, you know, all the bands whose albums we'd bought and I remember being with Peter, the bass player, and we got hold of a copy of the new uh, New Musical Express and Melody Maker, the kind of big uh, music uh, papers of the time and went to the back section of this and sort of looked up who was playing in London that night, expecting to find, you know, Susie and the Banshees and right. the Clash and the Damned and the Jam and, um, you know, all of these, the Cure and all of these bands that had come out of Britain and we couldn't find anything. And we looked at each other and then we went, well, there's got to be something happening in a pub somewhere. Right. We went and found... A, a pub and then really kind of came to the realisation that pubs in England are completely different to pubs in Australia in so much as they're kind of hole-in-the-wall, small little kind of corner places where people sit with their pint of uh, beer and lager and um, and there's a dartboard and, right. uh, you know, it's, it's quiet enough that you can chat in a corner and it's certainly not big enough that you can actually put a band in the corner and the places that we were playing in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide, some of them would, would could, could hold, you know, uh, 1,500 people, no problem. Right. Um, and so there were these massive uh, beer barns, I guess is the best way to describe <laughs> them. Um, and they were perfectly suited for bands to set up and play. And, and in fact, when we started playing, we were literally approaching pubs that had never had a band before, so they certainly didn't have a stage, and just sort of saying to the public, and can we clear the table out of that corner there right. and just plug in our amplifiers and start playing? And that was where we actually started out doing that kind of thing. So it was an incredibly um, vibrant time, and there were bands everywhere, and it was characterised by, you asked about, you know, did I ever think of wearing a tuxedo? Um, they were hot, you know. They right. were, <laughs> I've got photos of me from that period absolutely ringing wet, and you can see the front of them. My black Les Paul is just streaming with perspiration. Right. And, um, all of us at that time were as skinny as rakes, and there's no wonder <laughs> why, because um, they were such hot environments that uh, tuxedo, no way. No way. <laughs> Right. <laughs> now, yeah, the, the, you know, obviously the first album we're celebrating its 40th anniversary. Now, did you, in your wildest dreams, expect ha how well it was well received and so successful? The, 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 there was no way I could see through any of that. Um, so I put it in the context that, you know, apart from maybe four songs spread over, you know, from the age of 14 to the age of 21, four songs that I'd written uh, randomly on an acoustic guitar. These songs that are on the Flowers album represent, other than those, the very first songs that I ever wrote. And there was a big history before it, and uh, the big history was that we'd been playing live in the environment I've just described to you, this incredibly uh, rich, uh, busy, intense uh, environment of the of the Australian pub <laughs> music scene. We've been playing in that for nearly three years and adding the one song at a time very slowly. Um, and 
testing the songs, I guess, in a live environment and giving right. them a pretty difficult test too because every time a new song was finished, uh, it was sandwiched in between two classic cover versions, you know, mm-hmm. something like Get It On and right. you know, God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols or something, you know, incredibly well-known, um, big hits, and my poor, tiny, feeble, you know, new songs stuck <laughs> between these giants. Right. Um, but they had been tested, and by the time we'd been playing for three years, we had a massive live following. And this was quite a deliberate strategy from the management that we had and I really didn't ever get my head uh, into the whole thinking of management or career really even um, I was so heavily focused on the music that you know I, uh, even if they bothered to sit down and kind of had have a strategical conversation with me about this is what we're doing and why we're doing it um, I probably wouldn't have taken it in anyway. Right. But their thinking was quite sound and ultimately paid off. And they said, well, look, by the time we release this very first album, you've got such a big live following. You've already got um, tens of thousands of people who are going to go out and buy that straight away. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And it was probably, uh, I think I'm right in saying, it was the highest selling debut mm-hmm. album by any Australian band to that point and clocked in at 280,000 copies within a few weeks, which was sort of unheard of. Um, But, you know, I was always two steps behind the whole thing, you know, really running to catch up and didn't really um, have any confidence that it was going to be anything other than, you know, a glorified hobby. Hmm. In fact, I had a bet with, we were signed to a little independent label, which is really only two two guys, and I had a bit with one of them, and I said, uh, when the first single was about to come out, so our very first recording, our very first release, I said, I'm going to bet you $40 that this is not going to make it into the top 40, <laughs> and it made it into the top 10. So I lost that bet. Right. <laughs> uh, but that was kind of, that, that was that was how little confidence I had mm-hmm. that any of this was going to succeed in any way, shape, or form. And, and that was a can't help myself, right? Yeah, that's correct, yes.
Now, when you sit down and like write a song, are are you like thinking about writing like for a live performance, or is it just like strictly for the album? Can, can you separate the two? Um, no, I, I can't. And there's a really good example of that. Um, you know, we uh, growing up musically in that kind of punk rock uh, environment, it was pretty highly defined. Because I, I remember. Um, I guess I'd lived under a rock for most of my life as <laughs> much as I was kind of nerdy classical musician but with this other secret love of you know things rock and roll and because I'd kind of grown up in that sort of strangely protected um, environment I, I at the age of 21 or 22 had never been into a pub Okay. Um, and it was Keith I think that first took me into a pub and it was a pub with a band playing. And so it was like me going to Mars, you know. It was, <laughs> it was just a completely strange environment. And I sort of stood at the back with him and I watched, you know, people drinking and people dancing and looked at the room and looked at the band and came out of there and I said to Keith, I think I, I, think I understand what's going on there. Um, and he said to me, what what's going on and I said well I think um, the guys are there for the girls and the girls just want to dance <laughs> so if you get the girls to dance then you've got the whole room right and it seems kind of bleeding obvious really when I recount that <laughs> that that was my very first observation of what was going on but our set was dictated by that whole kind of uh, that whole kind of uh, prerequisite you had to be able to dance to it and and so a lot of it was hard and fast and, and and very high energy but along the way things changed and um we things were being invented uh, very rapidly in that sort of formative period of the band when i say things being invented well, i'm talking about the technology of music and a lot of that technology was dedicated to synthesizers right right and so we started taking on these pieces of equipment that were necessary to play some of the song, ambitious songs that we were um, attempting to cover. And I remember the night we got hold of a machine called a Selena String Ensemble. It was a brand new um, acquisition. And I took it home to my little flat and uh, stayed up all night with a tape recorder and uh, explored every sound on it and there was probably only about eight sounds you could get out of <laughs> right. this thing but um, they were all kind of push button presets and um, in the process of doing that I wrote the song Ice House
was. And I remember when we first debuted it in a in a live venue, it was a place that we didn't have a regular crowd because we hadn't played there before. But it was definitely a punk crowd, and they were expecting hard and fast music to dance to. And we got to the point where we were about to debut this song. It's a very slow song, and there were no guitars in it whatsoever. (laughs) And I remember thinking quite specifically, we are going to get killed here. Right. (laughs) Um, Nobody's going to be able to dance to this. What was I thinking, you know? And it was true. The whole room stopped, and we got to the end of it, and we were still alive. And uh, (laughs) and something very strange had happened. It had kind of mesmerized this crowd most of whom were probably speeding and yeah. you know wanting to jump up and down and, and um uh so we survived and i guess um they kind of opened the door for uh, the range of things that i could write uh to be bigger than i thought it was um and i think also sort of songs like that kind of set us apart a bit from um the other bands who are kind of still following the formula, as it were. Right, and, and that's how, I guess, uh, Primitive Man, I guess, came about? Were those songs? Well, Primitive Man was a completely different exercise. And in fact, okay. uh, somebody asked me this question um, the other day about the Flowers album, and I said, look, I have to distinguish the Flowers album from almost from all the albums that came after it in one very simple way. And that way is that the Flower songs were developed by a live band over a long period of time and tried and uh, changed and tested on a crowd. And so by the time we came to record the Flowers album and those songs, they were a product of, you know, at least a couple of years of... um, uh, refining the songs uh, for an audience but from that point on everything um, had a completely different method applied to it so <laughs> Primitive Man was the product of me acquiring some uh, technology in the form of a first affordable home 8 track tape recorder right? a brand new piece of technology called the Lindrum which was the first drum machine that actually had little digital samples of real drums in it um, and sitting down with a deadline which <laughs> you know was hanging over my head for every album right. from then on um, and having to come up with a quota of 10, 11, 12, 13 songs in a short space of time and so you can imagine those two processes are very different. And so, uh, not uh, surprisingly, the songs that came out of that um, uh, process were very different as well. And people, uh, you know, people who have been fans, a lot, a lot of people who are fans of that very first Flowers album are not necessarily great fans of what followed because right. um, the Flowers album is, you know, definitely a live album kind of thing. Uh, whereas all the albums that follow were kind of what you'd refer to it as, as studio albums. Right. And so um, when I was designing those songs for Primitive Man, I kind of didn't have any thought in my head of how the hell are we going to play this live. Okay. And, and in fact, it's very easy to see that because by the time I got to the end of that, it became patently clear because I'd been able to build up layers of keyboards with using this 8-track t- tape recorder that 
we needed two sets of keyboard player hands. We needed a second keyboard player. <laughs> right. And that was why the band expanded uh, from four-piece, uh, which was what Flowers was, to a six-piece band because we just simply... Uh, I, I built these songs in the studio and then we had to work out how we we're going to actually play them live. Yeah. So uh, Keith Horsey, I guess, co-produced Primitive Man. How much of an influence did he have on that album with you guys? <laughs> well, he... Keith Fawzi's um, background, I wasn't that familiar with um, at the time, and it did actually prove um, to be uh, quite a contributor, I guess, um, in so much as uh, Keith Fawzi was a drummer for, uh, a session drummer, and a very, very good drummer at that. Uh, and a lot of the work that he did over a period of 10 years was with Giorgio Moroder. Right. Giorgio Moroder, of course, being an incredibly famous producer, probably most often associated with the disco era and acts like Donna Summer and yeah. so on. But, you know, he produced Blondie and uh, a lot of people. But Keith had been his drummer. And as a result of the sort of things that um, George Amarota was producing, a lot of those were with uh, sequencer machines. Um, these are synthesizers that trigger in a kind of completely metronomic way. And... Uh, for a drummer, it's probably about the most demanding thing that you can do is to play with one of those things because it's like playing with a metronome and there is no room for error. So that would demonstrate to you how good a drummer Keith Horsey is and was. But I had a new piece of technology in the form of that Lindrum that I described to you right. that had kind of driven the writing of the songs and by then it become so embedded, um, for me anyway, in the kind of... Uh, integral sound of those songs but there was a certain point where it became apparent uh, in the project that Keith Forsey had intended always to replace the Lindrum with his live drums and okay. uh, at that point we kind of were at odds okay. um, and uh, it was sort of brought to a head by a process of doing the first kind of test mixes of the album and sending them off to Chrysalis which is our um, international record company right now i i produced um quite sophisticated demos on that little eight track um setup one of which everybody had taken to immediately and that was a song called great southern land right and so all the people involved in the project the, the australian record company uh, our managers and the international record company had sort of fallen in love with this demo and um we got to the point, so got got, got to the point in, in uh, working in Los Angeles at Westlake, where uh, Keith said to me, "I'd like to put real drums on this," and this was the song "Great Southern Land." So he did, um, and, and played wonderfully, played beautiful drums, of course. Um, and he said, "I think we should do a test mix, even though we weren't really finished, kind of recording everything." Uh, he wanted to kind of be one step ahead of the record company, I guess we should do a, a test mix on this and send it off to Chrysalis and just make sure we're on, on, on the right track. And we did that. And it got sent back to us with the message, no, we don't like it. Hmm. Um, and this happened three times we mixed this recording. And three times it came back <coughs> from Chrysalis with the message, we don't like it. And at that point I was completely baffled because we recorded 
the song pretty much exactly the same way I'd done the demo and it was a demo that everybody loved and I couldn't for the life of me work out why what was so terribly wrong with the kind of repeat version of this recording that Chrysalis was not happy with it and so in sort of desperation um, I, I called our manager and said listen I've got to kind of retrace my steps because I just don't understand why the people at Chrysalis are not liking this as well as they did the right. demo and I don't understand why so can you get me another studio and another engineer and I'm just going to redo the demo and and you know make a new version of exactly what I did before that made everybody happy and we'll see and I did that and in fact it was incredibly quick I think the entire recording took about two hours and oh, wow. we took two hours to mix it um, and of course it was done with the Lindrum right <laughs> And when, when we mixed it and sent that off to Chrysalis, suddenly the lights went on and everybody said, that's it, that's it, that's, mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what we're missing. And of course, at that point, I realized that the inherent difference was that everybody in Chrysalis had fallen in love with the Lindrum and the sound of the Lindrum. Mm -hmm. And Keith Forsey had attempted to replace it with real drums. Yeah. And although the people at Chrysalis couldn't actually describe what was different that they didn't right. like, that's what it was. Oh, wow. <laughs> What did, what did Keith uh, say? Well, Keith didn't give up the cause. He kept kind of fighting me to get real drums on things, but it would have been a very different album. Right. Um, and he'd kind of recently come off the back of his very first success as a producer, and it was, and I don't remember the name of the album, but you will uh, recall the very big hits for Billy Idol. Um Hot in the City and White Wedding. Uh, yeah, do you know the name of the album? Uh, I think I think it's the self-titled. I, th I think right, it's, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so this was kind of the first thing that the story is that George Amarota really had this relationship with um, with Keith Forsey and decided to kind of groom him as an up-and-coming producer. Right. And so the opportunity was given to him to produce this new act for Chrysalis, Billy Idol, and of course it was a massive success. And it was built on uh, Billy Idol's band, I guess, but Keith Forsey played drums on it. Okay. And I kind of often reflect that Primitive Man pretty much would have sounded like the Billy Idol mm. album, I right. guess, if we'd gone down the same road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, I'm glad the Lindrum won out because uh, Great Southern Land is a fantastic song, the, the way it's recorded. Um, I, I, I discovered it when they re-released re it, I think, in 89. I, I was 14 at the time, and uh, that's when I heard it for the first time, which I absolutely loved. I wish I would have heard it sooner.
the thing, you know. It's it's not the be all and end all of everything, but it is a particular thing. And um, I guess uh, it's neither here nor there, really. Uh, you know, those songs would have survived either treatment, but. Um, it was what I was kind of locked into at the time and, you know, the Lindrum only really lasted that one album for right. me. The technology was moving so fast yeah. that by the time I got to writing, you know, the album after that, I'd, I'd moved on to a different set of technology. Right. I th- actually, I think the first time I heard it was probably Young Einstein. I think I heard it in, in that movie first. <laughs> you, you heard it where? Uh, in, in the movie Young Einstein. <laughs> right, which was... Yeah. Um, quite a bit, sort of chronologically, quite a bit after the song had come out. I don't I forget what year it would have been that Young Einstein yeah, would have come out. Yeah, I think but, it was uh, like '88, '89. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people were introduced to uh, Great Southern Land through that movie, right. far more than I, um, you know, realized at the time it might happen. Yeah, because um, like I said, I discovered you guys with the. Well, I guess we'll talk about the album now, the Man of Colors album. And I was uh, 12. I, I don't want to make you feel too old, but I was 12 when that album came out. And uh, with Crazy, that was the first single. And I absolutely fell in love with that song. And I'm sure it was definitely on a couple mixtapes that gave the girls that song. <laughs> right.
Yeah. So, um, what was like the like the recording process of that of that album? Was it similar to the other ones? So what happened was that uh, the third album was an album called Sidewalk, and right. it was kind of a reaction against um, uh, the kind of producer element that Keith Forsey represented to me, which was sort of attempting to take things out of my hands, I guess. And so I produced it myself, and that in itself was probably a bit of a mistake. And Sidewalk didn't succeed terribly well uh, on a commercial level, and it was a bit of a kick in the guts I guess and so for the next album which was Measure for Measure uh, fourth album I kind of pulled all the stops out and just wanted to make it and that, that kind of pioneered a relationship with our lead guitarist which turned out to be a very good co-writing um, relationship although you know Bob really didn't contribute too much concrete to uh, to the songwriting process, but he was incredibly good sounding board. So I could kind of bounce stuff off him and go, you know, what do you think, this one or this one? And he'd make a decision on the spot. And it kind of streamlined the whole process of writing. So this is the process of writing measure for measure. But we also, through um, uh, kind of coincidentally, t technology had, had turned up a brand new uh, invention at that point as well, and that was the Mitsubishi 32-track digital tape machine. Okay. And so Measure for Measure ended up being one of the very first fully digital recordings ever made because we were right on the cusp of the invention of the CD as well. Right. And so Measure for Measure was a really beautifully engineered, pristine album, and it's kind of split between two, two co-producers. One was Red Davies, who had done... I picked because he um, was highly tied in with a lot of uh, work by one of my kind of keyboard idols, and that was Brian Eno from Roxy Music. Right. And um, so I picked him, and I picked a fellow called David Lord because he'd very recently produced uh, the fourth Peter Gabriel album, which was very heavily uh, contributed to by the, another piece of technology that I was... Uh, deeply involved with, which was a thing called the Fairlight or the Computer right. Music Instrument. Yeah. In fact, an Australian invention, but it was an incredibly... The world's first sampler um, is the best way to describe it. And so this project of Measure for Measure was split between these two producers, and they were both brilliant, and I got on particularly well with both of them. So when it came time to approach Man of Colours, the album which was to follow that, the fifth album, uh, it was sort of torn a bit, but my... my experience working with David Lord was that Rhett Davies had very successfully recorded my, you know, re-recorded my demos, as it were, um, and beautifully done as well. But he hadn't really kind of added any ideas to it, whereas David Lord was quite sort of proactive and being a, a you know, highly trained uh, keyboard player, in fact, um, graduate of the Royal uh, College of Music in London as an organist, and he made additions to the recordings. He put on what he referred to as his tinkles, right. um, which was just uh, him, you know, kind of having various ideas about keyboard parts that were things that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of. They weren't you know, on the original demos. So by the time we got to the finishing up Measure for Measure and David Lord mixed it and added his kind of tinkles, I thought, well, that's the guy for me um, when approaching Man of Colours. So... Uh, we brought David Lord uh, out to Australia uh, to record Man of Colours and 
the songwriting process was really an extension of that kind of um, uh, relationship that I had with Bob Krishmer, our lead guitarist. So okay. in lots of ways, Man of Colours is a kind of obvious carry on over from the measure for measure process. The one thing that was different, though, which I think broke David Lord's heart, was hmm. that Australia hadn't yet embraced the technology of the Mitsubishi Digital 32-track tape recorder. Okay. And so we were sort of forced back into older technology, and that was analog uh, tape with two machines synchronised, right. uh, two 24-track machines synchronised into the 48-track um, setup. And David Lord kind of needled me the whole way through the process that we'd actually gone slightly backwards in terms of the quality of the recording and, right. and so on. So it all depended on really a brilliant um, Australian engineer, David Hemming, who did a beautiful job of recording uh, Man of Colours. But it was that set of songs, though, I think, which was the key to it all. Um, having worked on the previous album with Bob, uh, we were kind of up and running as a good songwriting team at that point. And I think it probably, uh, it's apparent um, through the quality of the songs on Man of Colors. Right, yeah, I mean, they're all fantastic. And I'll mention Crazy. Um, was that like, were any of those songs like kind of like semi-autobiographical? Or do you guys just kind of come out of it out of the blue, so to speak? The, uh, you know, that's a, a, a very good question. And, and one which is kind of weird to answer because... <laughs> I remember the songs on the Flowers album. Now you're talking about a period where I hadn't really written any songs, right? Um, but I was acutely aware of kind of the different varieties of songs and what songs could convey. And for example, I was a really big fan of uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue album, okay. and it's an incredibly personal album, and they're very autobiographical. Those songs, and so I sort of said, had the conversation with myself. I guess this is. This is relating to the Flowers songs, you know, whatever you do, don't put yourself in these songs. Hmm. And so I actively tried not to do that. And of yeah. course, looking back 40 years at the songs from the Flowers album, and there's a whole lot of alienation going on there. And that's <laughs> exactly what I was like. I kind of, you know, I was almost like a vampire. I only came hmm. out at night. I lived on my own. Right. Didn't speak to anyone. You know, it was, of course, it was all about, you know, me. And uh, you fast forward to Man of Colours at the time of writing those songs. No, I didn't have a clue. But of course, looking back, um, yeah. being able to, to view them with hindsight, they're quite a lot of um, autobiographical content in those songs. Mm -hmm. I guess um, uh, one of the most telling songs is the song Man of Colours itself. Right.
That's good. It's a, uh, you know, I guess uh unintentional muse, so to speak, right? <laughs> uh, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I guess we'll talk about uh, Electric Blue now, which uh probably your biggest hit in the States. It's a fantastic song. It's it's a perfect pop song, and I absolutely love it. Uh, you mentioned John Oates, who co-wrote it. How did uh, that collaboration come about? 
started uh, a lot earlier than um, than nineteen eighty seven, which I think was the year that we probably would have written that song. And I think it must have been uh, nineteen eighty two. I was sitting in Adelaide Airport. I think we just landed, and uh, we were touring that that second album, Primitive Man, and uh, this reasonably short. Uh, youngish man with a moustache came over to me and he was brandishing a cassette copy of, of Primitive Man and introduced himself and he said, hi, I'm John Oates and I've just bought your album. I'm loving it. We, we played in the venue you are going to play in tonight. We played there last night. Um, great to meet you and sort of shook my hand and, and walked off to catch his plane and I was sort of in shock, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow, that was John Oates. That's amazing. And he, he actually physically had the album in his hand. And, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I just thought that well, that was a moment, and I kind of um, clocked that down in my memory. And um, you know, the years went on, and we, you know, wrote and recorded a couple, couple more albums, and and so on. And we were in the middle of a tour for the fourth album, and um, we were staying. We had a little break. We were staying in uh, uh, the Mayflower Hotel, which was a grand old hotel in New York. I overlooked Central Park, and it's not there anymore, I believe. But I'd been in there for a couple of weeks. Um, having this little break in the Measure for Measure tour and uh, been there long enough that the, bar, the bartender had gotten to know me and knew my name. And it was a very quiet evening in that bar and the phone rang uh, behind him and he picked it up and then he handed the phone over to me and said, there's a phone call for you. And uh, the voice on the end of the phone said, hi, it's um, John Oates, Ivor, and uh, we've got to write songs together. <laughs> and he was completely straight up front about it. Right. And I've sort of always been terrified of the whole, well, terrified of the songwriting process anyway because it's such an unknown to me, but certainly terrified of anybody uh, other than Bob with whom I had a very kind of sort of special relationship. Uh, anybody witnessing my weird kind of songwriting method and how long it took and the strange experiments that I did in order to try and get some ideas and, you know, the last thing that I really wanted to do was to try to write songs with John Oates, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. a terrifying prospect. Uh, so I made every excuse I could possibly uh, come up with, and I said, well, I can't, I can't do anything at the moment, I'm in the middle of a tour, and he said, that's all right, I'll wait until the end of the tour. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, when the tour ends, I've got to go back to Australia. Said, no problem, I'll come out to Australia. And so there was no getting away from it, you know, <laughs> right. he was absolutely determined. And so in due course, he did uh, come to Australia and he bought a whole lot of, it was incredibly generous because he bought a whole lot of equipment with him and he you know, had to pay for freighting that over to Australia. And and um, I had quite a clumsy kind of setup. I did have a full 24-track studio and a big desk, but it was really in, it was in the lounge room of my house and the house was pretty old and kind of falling down. Hmm. Um so it certainly wasn't a pristine studio environment, but he didn't didn't phase him in the least. And we spent a week. And by the time we got to the end of the process, um, the song, and he was due to go back, um, the song still wasn't really finished. There were lots of big holes in it. There were lots of blanks in the lyrics and the vocal lines and so on were, melodies were all constructed, but it certainly wasn't a finished song. But nonetheless, even in the state that it was in, he was absolutely convinced I've got a vivid, picture of him standing in the doorway waiting for the cab to take him to the airport making me promise him 
that we would record it and put it out as a single because he said if you don't you let me know because Hall and Oates will record it and put it out as a single because it's, it's a hit right and he just was absolutely convinced at which point I was kind of scratching my head and going really I mean it's not even finished but he was absolutely right yeah. of course yeah, I mean, he he definitely knows his song, so uh, he, he was right there. So I'm 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 glad you kept it and not not let them record it, because uh, they they don't need another hit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, he obviously has a sort of the experience of the sensibility of being able to craft uh, songs. Uh, and it's a really kind of rare thing, I guess. Um, it's sort of the ultimate professional, really. Right. Now, I, I'm I'm sure you, you've heard it a bunch of times already, but the Killers cover version of Electric Blue, which I think is fantastic. What, what, what are your thoughts about it? Well, I was gobsmacked for a start. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it's an incredibly good version. And, right. um, and so much so that I actually sent a message to Brandon Flowers and, and telling him that I was intensely jealous of um, his beautiful <laughs> vocal because right. um, it's actually quite a difficult song to sing and it was very clear from watching them because it was filmed, of course, right, and, yeah. uh, that he and the whole of the band, including you know the lead guitarist, this sort of perfectly emulates a, a tenor solo saxophone on the original recording and you can see the kind of intensity of these guys that they're really focused on doing the absolute best possible version of this song and it's quite humbling really um because i i you know i hadn't really studied the killers catalog although my mm. son many years ago alerted me to the killers because he was a big fan okay um and um so i was amazed that this song had found its way uh, you know into the the kind of repertoire of things that Brandon Flowers likes and I should have you know I should not have been surprised I guess because David Bowie who we toured with and uh he said to me um in respect of you know why we ended up on that tour right uh, he said you, you never know who will be listening because I heard your song Hey Little Girl okay was a hit in Europe right and that was what resulted in the offer to tour with him wow <laughs> so I guess you know I always had one little voice at the back of my head being David Bowie's telling me you'll never know who, who'll be listening but you know I, I still didn't expect Brandon <laughs> Flowers to be listening to Electric Blue <laughs> right uh, yeah I mean it's it's probably probably around the same age I am so you probably uh, listened to it growing up so it's you know the songs stay with you and it's uh, I'm usually not one who likes covers I kind of I have no you know attachment to these songs but except an emotional one and you always feel like you know how dare another artist cover these songs but when they do it right it's fantastic oh it's an incredibly you know it's an incredible compliment it's uh um you're by far the best uh cover of any of my songs that's ever been done i, I would say that without doubt right and uh, another song that album which i absolutely love it's kind of like it's one of the bonus tracks is touch the fire which is a fantastic song. Any backstory about that one? She lays down the mystery, all the 
And uh, so it was kind of a little oasis. Um, and I remember getting incredibly excited by it. And uh, of course, in those days, we were putting things on cassettes and getting to my van and putting the cassette on and driving to my manager's place. And by the time I got to the front door, I said, this is a hit, this is a hit. You know, I'm, like, this, you know I, was, right. I was kind of always baffled by me completing a song anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always, you know, how did that happen or whatever. Right. But on this particular occasion, I'd got to the end of it and gone, actually, I can hear this being incredibly catchy. Right. And so um, I, I was never confident when things were being released and I was often wrong too. Um, some things that I had great belief in were not well received and um, and vice versa. There were things that were... A song called Sister, for example, from the Flowers album, was never a single and it probably should have been a single, right. uh, but I didn't hear it at the time. But with Touch the Fire, I guess I had a reasonable amount of confidence and it did kind of deliver um, the hit that was kind of needed to fill the gap between those two albums. Right. How much like pressure was was on you, you know, for Code Blue because the success of Man in Colors? Um, well, probably a lot more than I registered because we're we're incredibly busy. Um, Man of Colors sort of took off in all sorts of directions, and one of them, of course, was that Crazy got into the US top 20 and I remember receiving the phone call from a manager and I was in a phone booth in fact when I got <laughs> the news <laughs> um, and then Electric Blue followed it even further up the US charts and at the same time uh, the album was released in Australia and went straight into number one and it stayed at number one for 11 weeks so there was kind of ridiculous activity going on everything was exploding and one thing led to another uh, in terms of the demands and a very big tour in um, Australia and New Zealand, but then followed by a tour of the United States, which was seven months long. Right. So that's a long time to be in a different city every night and playing just about every night. Um, and I very nearly didn't survive. And in fact, I had a kind of breakdown in the middle of it, but nonetheless, I got back in the Spitfire and took off again. Um, um, so I guess... You, uh, you, your question was, you know, was there a lot of pressure? Well, the pressure was kind of more in the practical day-to-day, -day, how do I get through this tour type pressure. I hadn't really even thought about um, how am I going to top that, <laughs> <laughs> which only really kind of registered once the, we got off the hamster wheel of touring and got back to Erskineville where my, my falling down house with the studio in it was. <laughs> And then realised that I've got to write another album, um, and uh, probably only then really registered that that sort of pressure that you're talking about. Right, right. Uh, one more question for you. Uh, you know, obviously, once you know, I guess the you stopped you know touring or recording with Ice House. You uh, wrote music for a film, Master and Commander, which I absolutely love. I love that film. Uh, how did you get involved with that? So once again, there's that quote from David Bowie, you never know who's going to be listening. Right. And um, where this came from was that I was approached by the the creative team of the uh, people who were in charge of Sydney's Millennium um, uh, celebration. And uh, they said to me, 
we'd like you to write the 25 minutes of music um, leading up to the countdown, uh, the New Year's Eve countdown. And we have these resources. We have the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and we have a group of Japanese taiko drummers and a number of other things. And, the, and we'd like you to perform this piece of music on the forequarter of the, of the Opera House in the 25 minutes leading up to uh, the 1098. And at the time I'd been working with um, a violinist who is uh, Australia's uh, foremost violinist and the director of the Australian Chamber Orchestra. His name is Richard Tognetti and he is a world-class virtuoso. And I'd been working with him. He'd actually contributed to a couple of new songs I'd been writing um, as a player. And I popped my hand up and said to these people at the Millennium, um, I'm working with Richard Tognetti. Can we include him in this piece of music too? And they said, sure. And Richard was very fired up because um, he had an electric violin, which hmm. I don't think anybody had really taken seriously um, before. And he right. thought this is a perfect perfect opportunity to kind of showcase this electric violin um and so we developed this piece of music and in due course obviously on the night of the last night of 1999 mm. uh we performed it with the sydney symphony orchestra and it went out to something in the order of four billion people on television because wow. sydney was you know, one of the first countries i guess to to count down into 2000 right and it was a great success and, you know, none of the technology failed and you know, <laughs> the computers didn't explode and right. <laughs> at a minute past midnight in 2000 or whatever. Um, and that was that. Uh, and then I was uh, one day, a couple of years on, sitting in my studio in uh, Well Beach and the phone rang. And on the end of the phone, a uh, voice said, hi, Ivor, this is Peter Weir. And of course I knew instantly who Peter Weir right, uh, right, is. Right, right, of course. It's an iconic film director, Australian film director, and, you know, it's produced some incredibly famous uh, movies going right back to Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a, an Australian classic. And he said, um, I'm uh, on location in Baja, and I'm filming a film with Russell Crowe uh, called Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, and I'd like you to do the music. And what had happened was that he too on the night of the millennium tick over was one of those four billion people watching what? and listening on on television wow and he had fallen in love with the piece of music that i created it was called the ghost of time and in fact um it's it was leading up to a version of great southern land it was kind of a built around great southern land and in fact if you get the sort of long form of the dvd of master commander and you go to the extras um you'll get to a section where um, they're talking about the music and you'll see footage of Peter Weir wandering uh, around the, the, the tall ship at 4.30 in the morning carrying a ghetto blaster with the ghost of time blaring out. Right. And he was using using that to kind of G up the crew and the cast um, first thing in the morning as a, as a kind of uh, you know background to what he thought the kind of vibe of the movie was of the, of the tale. Um, so yeah, once again, you never know who will be listening. Wow, no, it's amazing. Yeah, and the music's great. That movie is it's fantastic. I, I, w I wish they would have made more because there were a bunch of books. I wish they would have made more of those. I think <laughs> he probably found it quite intimidating. The the as you say, it's a sort of uh, the franchise of these books. I think it's about twenty twenty one or twenty three yeah. books by Patrick O'Brien, based around this period and this particular character captain jack aubrey um 
based around the the, the Napoleon Wars and, right. um, and the British uh, Navy. And this, what we didn't, I didn't realise until it explained to me was that these these novels. Um, there's a massive fan base for them, and they are incredibly detailed about it. all the stuff to do with the time and the uh, the equipment and the ships and the the weapons and these sorts of details are what the fan base are really fanatical about. And I know that Peter Weir knew that he was going to have to get this absolutely right, or he would just get a barrage of complaints from this fan base. <laughs> right? Yeah. Would he, he would use messed up this detail and that wasn't really a French musket that the French guy was holding and whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know whether Peter Wee was that keen to kind of take on that amount of pressure again, actually. Right, I'm sure. I'm sure it's got to be exhausting. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, actually, one more. I always ask this. Uh, remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Actually, it predates even Flowers uh, because it goes back to those two singles uh, right. that I put out when I was 19, or RCA put, put them out, actually. And um, and that brand-new national radio station, Double J, it was called at the time. And um, uh, I was pulling into a car park behind a place called the Horden Pavilion, which is a venue that um, years later we would, we would play, and in fact, we I think the first time we played in the Horton Pavilion was supporting Roxy Music, who were oh, wow. probably in the highest peak of their career at that point. But there I was in my first car, and this song of mine um, came onto the radio, and I just pulled up in the car park and sat there, <laughs> <laughs> right. listening and going, wow, that's me on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> so in fact, it was, you know, it predated the Flowers stuff, so... Um, that was a bit of a moment, but I, uh, it must have been a moment because otherwise I wouldn't have such a clear picture of the car that I was driving and where I was. Right, exactly. So, so what about like the most interesting place you heard one of your songs? Oh, look, I joked to somebody recently um, that uh, that uh, I, I live in a kind of little area by the beach that's got a sort of village attached to it, I guess. It's only quite a small place. So there's a limited number of shops there in a very, very small um, supermarket, which is part of a big chain in Australia, but as far as um, Woolworths supermarkets are concerned, this one's quite a small one. Right. And um, I know exactly how long, and I know this supermarket very well because it's um, um, it's fairly small. In other words, um, if, if I make my shopping list up, I can actually do it in terms of the aisles that I go mm. down. So right. that's how well I know this supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, I, I tend to sort of be blindingly efficient about my, my shopping expeditions. Um, and I walked in one day and the very first opening note of Great Southern Land was playing okay. in the supermarket. And I remember getting to the end of my shop and standing at the checkout <laughs> and putting the groceries in my bag and the song was just finishing. And walking out of the supermarket and realised, now I know exactly how long it takes me to do my my shop at the supermarket it takes me five minutes and 15 seconds because that's how long Great Southern Land is. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> that, that, that's so, yeah, that was a moment. Where, oh, wow. Yeah, five minutes and 15 seconds. Excellent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. But uh, I, I, I really appreciate your, your, your time today um, or, 
or tomorrow where you are um ice house plays flowers is out now it's it's a fantastic live album and all the best and hopefully sometime in the future we'll, we'll see you guys perform in the states oh, i would love to come to the states there's no doubt about that I mean, we've been busting to do that for a long time so yeah we'll get there <laughs> And a special thanks to Iva for joining me today. Check them out on Twitter at Icehouse Band. And their website is icehouse-ivadavies.com. If you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first Noel19. Or like the page Review My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. A new episode comes in every week. And before we go, here is... The Killer's cover of Electric Blue. We'll see you next week.